live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We welcome those of you who are tuning in live, those of you who watch on the archives, and of course, our guests here in the church studio. Our prayer tonight will be given by me. Lord, we love you. We need you. We thank you for loving us so much, loving this world that you sent your only begotten Son. And for his... Uh, shed blood, the life he lived, the love he gave. We're grateful for it and uh, help us to look to him as the author and finisher of our faith, be strengthened in the spirit and walk from the flesh. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we have a number of books you are familiar with. I was a born-again Mormon. It is a book that is gentle about the LDS uh, Mormon Christian debate talks about facts, but it's a, it's a good gentle book to give to your LDS friends, or if you want to read about the, a little bit about the insights or to the LDS church. And then we have a hardback book where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face, an A to Z doctrinal comparative between Mormonism and biblical Christianity. Uh, this book is, uh, we go through and we talk about, I think it's 47 uh, different subjects. Uh, what the Bible says, and then what the LDS Church teaches. There's a lot of quotes in there from uh, both. And then we have, If My Kingdom Were of This World, Then My Servants Would Fight. This is an hour read, uh, and it's one of my favorite books because it's so um, blunt, and uh, I, I like it a lot. And then we have uh, The End of Material Religion. It's a workbook, and you just work through scriptures and see what you think. You might not agree with what it says in here, but you might. And so we offer this. You can get this free uh, from us. We download it to you uh, if you want it mailed. If you are in town, you can pick one up from us here. And then our new book, Knife to a Gunfight. It's the newest book. It is called Misinterpreting the Purpose and Place of the New Testament. It's really probably best described as an indictment against Sola Scriptura. And, uh, and so... Um, that's available now. All of these are available by going to www.hotm.tv through our uh, bookstore. And by the way, some of you ordered a package of books probably about two years ago. And we said that we would give you this book for free when it came out. And so Derek and Danita talked with me this afternoon and said they're getting those ready and they will be mailing those to you. So those of you who ordered the Christmas package two years ago, you will be getting this in the mail free of charge. You know, I've had some thoughts about something. I'm going to go to the whiteboard. And I want to just uh, try this out. I've just thought about it. I want you to imagine uh, that somebody was able to get an actual photograph, which is impossible, of all the biblical narrative from uh, the Garden of Eden represented maybe from a bird's eye view where it was located, looking down on a map to Mount Sinai, to Egypt, Mount Nauvoo, to Jerusalem, to uh, Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, the Sea of Galilee. Now, this isn't geographically correct. I have no idea where these things are placed, but just go with me for a minute. Pretend that someone has an actual aerial view of everything the Bible talks about and is able to capture it in this picture, okay? And we have Calvary, we have the Dead Sea, we have Qumran, Dead Sea Scrolls, Bethlehem, Samaria, all of that stuff in a picture. And then 
someone takes that picture and blows it up to 20 feet tall by 20 feet wide. It's that big. And then they mount it on thick cardboard and someone cuts out puzzle pieces. And they, they, they make unique puzzle pieces of this whole map. I made the puzzle pieces big here, but let's say it's a 10,000 puzzle piece puzzle, okay? And there, it's all there, the whole thing. Now, I want you to just imagine that this represents an individual's Christian walk, knowledge, view, heart, everything that they know about Christianity is represented in this puzzle. All right? Just kind of work with me on this. Now, I want to suggest that in the puzzle, in fact, let me use red here, there's one key piece. It's even heart-shaped. And we're going to call this the love piece of the puzzle. It's right there on the cross. Jesus Christ came and he did it. If we he took this piece out, we would have a blank spot right here. And that blank spot would make all the rest of it nonsense. Stories. History. Without that key piece of the cross of Christ Jesus and what he did on Calvary, representing the love of God, all the rest of this, all of our knowledge about Jerusalem, all the stories about it coming back or being destroyed, Mount Moriah, the temple, the law, Sea of Galilee, tales that go on there, Garden of Eden, all that stuff would mean nothing if we had it all in our head and heart and we understood it perfectly, we could recite it chapter and verse. If we're missing that key piece, we have an incomplete puzzle, right? And I would suggest that if somebody who has all knowledge of all this stuff but is missing the love, they've missed the boat. They've missed the boat completely on why all of this has existed and played a part in our lives as Christians. Now, the other side to this is if you could only have one puzzle piece to your life, only one, that you could pick any puzzle piece on here, then you could erase all of this, every single puzzle piece, just understand only understand this piece right here, the cross and the love that God so loved us, he sent his only begotten. You could die and go before God and have just one piece of the puzzle in place and you're going to be better off than someone who has the other 9,999 pieces in place but is missing this one. That's the import of what Christ did for us and the importance of love in the Christian life. Without it, without that piece, the puzzle is incomplete and ridiculous. And yet, paradoxically, if that's the only piece you've got, you're fine with God. You get it? So keep that in mind as we continue to talk. Tonight, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, 
a white horse. Our From the Word tonight is going to be tonight's show, Let the Spirit Guide. I just started working on it. It just kept going. I just said, all right, that's what we're doing. Last week, this is a continuation part two. We read from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 17, remember? And this is what Peter said, the apostle, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the bent. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it and take it patiently, this is acceptable before God. So we talked about those verses last week and are from the word. I want to continue on with what Peter says at verse 21 through 24, okay? He goes on, he says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not. Again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. These words, if you didn't recognize it, create a high, high level of pursuit in individual Christians. To walk as Jesus walked and respond as Jesus responded. But notice the difficulty of it didn't prevent Peter from mentioning it and telling us that's what's expected. He starts with the line, for even hereunto were you called. All right? So we know God is calling and, and Peter tells us, the apostle says, that's what you were called to do is to suffer. You are called to do that. So this is what you're called to do. This is God's purpose for calling you. This is your calling, Peter says. We are in the body of Christ for these ultimate means of presenting these same attributes that were in Christ to others in our lives. You know? And now hear me clearly. If you're sitting at home or here with us and you're a babe in Christ, You've just come to know Christ. You haven't matured yet in the faith. You haven't chewed on the meat of the word. Peter's instructions could really mess you up, right? Because immature believers will respond to a message like Peter's in their flesh. They'll, they'll start trying to suffer for the cause. Or they'll try to like physically suffer. Or they'll self-flagellate or, or they'll start fasting in order to please God and do all sorts of things like that. Forgetting that having begun in the spirit, which Paul says, we are not going to go on and perfect ourselves in the flesh. In other words, it all comes by and through God working through us, not us perfecting our flesh. So look to Christ if you're a babe in Christ. Spend time in his word. Let the spirit grow you as a branch and move you. Don't let your own t flesh become a taskmaster over what you do and don't do. It's never worked. This being said, if you are a babe, it's vital that you do what uh, Paul says, taste the sincere milk of the word. Means start nourishing yourself on the milk of the word. 
okay? Now, uh, babes, they drink milk because they can't chew meat, and so, so do baby Christians. The milk of the word, the easier things of the word. Chew on, drink, nourish yourself until you can grow teeth and chew on the meat. However, for those of you who have walked with Christ for a while, who've eaten enough plates of doctrinal meat, uh, where you have the spiritual strength and maturity, Peter is calling you here to a path. And it's clear. It's a path of dying to the flesh. Don't kid yourself. Do not kid yourself. Uh, the scripture is replete that death to the flesh is the call on the Christian life. Now, he's calling people to suffer the ways of selfish people. So when we're talking about suffering in the flesh, we're not talking about, you know, literal physical suffering, not necessarily. He's calling us to suffer self-effacement, to suffer humility, to suffer from living according to what our fleshly desires want us to do. And he's calling us to this insufferable death of our flesh and to live by the Spirit, uh, which will allow us to move and live like Jesus moved and lived. That is the call. I've read through the New Testament so many times. I, are, I, I articulate it from the Greek. I'm in it every morning, churning it out. And I'm telling you, we cannot ignore the call on the Christian life to follow Christ in the life he lived. So he's pushing for us to submit to the injustices that are rampant in this world, even in the world of modern Christianity. So I recently realized that in this world, a person as a Christian, you're going to choose one or two things. And maybe I'm wrong in this, argue it. You're going to choose to be a predator or you're going to choose to be the prey. We've got one or two choices there in our lives as Christians. You can be preyed upon or you can be the one who is preying on people. Depredations, the predator. This is especially true when you go out and you try to do the work of Christ through love for others. So in his name, we can put ourselves above others. We can put others in bondage. We can master them. We can make demands on them. We can tell them what they need to do to serve us or our institutions or church or political party or whatever. Or we can follow the lead of Jesus and serve God and then do all we can in that service to set others free, not preying upon them, but serving them. And the more we selflessly seek to set others free, the more they typically prey upon you. It's an interesting facet that when you serve another person, they often prey upon you and you become the prey. And we make that choice because that's what happened to Christ. He became the prey of this world. He became the, the, the prey for our sin. He allowed it to happen. He washed the feet. He, he healed the sick. He let virtue go out of him. He went to the cross. He picked up his cross. All of that emblematic of being prey, not a predator. Peter says, do well as Jesus did, especially in the face of persecution. This is what you and I are called to do, to do well in the face of flesh, trials, persecution, anger, resentment, all those things. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, 
as he writes to comfort the saints in an effort, says, so that no one should be drawn aside by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to them. We are appointed, Paul says, to afflictions. It's an affliction to have your flesh suffer. Christians are appointed to that. Meat eaters have to recall, sometimes in the heat of a trial, that they have been called, that we have been called, listen, just like Jesus, and that we have been appointed, Paul says, appointed to suffering. We don't hear it much. Uh, it's really the bottom line. Um, it's, the bo- it's the pulse of the modern Christian life for those who have uh, left infancy and babes and toddlership of being a Christian and are now eating meat. The call is suffering. Uh, here in First Peter, Peter gives us sort of a roundabout reason for this calling, and he says something super significant. He says, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Did you hear that? Now, Paul said something really, really interesting relative to this concept in Philippians 3, 8 through 11. He said of himself, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them as but dung, that I may win Christ, ready, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, ready, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. And then he adds a really wild verse. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's what Paul says. As an aside, do a, uh, do a search on that last line where Paul says, if by any means I may, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. It's fascinating because Paul uses a word called ex anastasius there. Okay? The word anastasius means resurrection throughout Scripture. He uses the word ex anastasius there. It's not used anywhere else in Scripture. Study it. It'll blow your mind. Uh, and it's unknown why he does this, but it seems like he is suggesting that he wants to participate in a resurrection that is not of the general sort. He wants to attain to the resurrection that is of the Christ sort. There's a difference, it seems. It's radical. Look out. Here comes the cries of heresy, but it's right there. Check it out. So, and this conjecture and this fact made Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, suggest that there are resurrections where people get their procreative parts intact and, and, and as if there's a different types of resurrection. So he played off that as well. In any case, Peter's objective is to hold Christ up as our example. Okay. Now, I used to hate that phrase. Coming from Mormonism, they use it all the time. Jesus is our perfect example. 
He's our perfect example. Follow him as our perfect example. And it used to drive me crazy, but it's not off to what Peter is saying here. The Greek word for example in the King James is another word not found anywhere else in the New Testament. The term is hupogramos. Hupogramos. It's a compound word. Hupo means under. And gramos is taken from uh, grapho, which means to write, to underwrite, okay? That's what hupogramos means. And it refers to, uh, do you remember when we were in school and we were learning cursive, how they had those papers where they had the cursive uh, letter that was like in lines, S, and then and below the line, you'd practice over and over again how to make those things. That's hupogramos, underwriting, looking at the example, and then repeating that example in your handwriting. Okay? So uh, the teacher gave those papers, and we would hupogramos this cursive writing. Taking Christ and his life and this imagery is what Peter means. Look at him, how he lived, what he did, and hupogramos, Christ. The LDS would say, make him your example. You know, there's something I take really seriously in my life. I don't want to die and find out that I have been copying a drawing of Jesus from the wrong illustrators. I don't want to hupogramos my life after a Jesus that doesn't exist. I want to hupogramos my life after the real McCoy, as troubling as that can be because I stub a trip and fall and I make mistakes of trying to discern who he is. But he said, hey, to know him and, the, and know the Father and him who he sent is life eternal. I don't want to hoopogramma some dude that doesn't exist, you know. And I, I've seen a lot of illustrations of him uh, from the perfect orthodontia surfer Jesus, blue eyes, to the, uh, all these different Jesus that we're supposed to emulate. And I don't want those. I want the biblical uh, Christ that we can hupogramos. So like Bereans, we seek, we search the word and its descriptions to know how to hupogramos or pattern ourselves after what we discover. This is the single most important, uh, one of the single most important values we get from having the word. Thank God. It opens our spirit up to images and imagery of him that otherwise would not be uh, accessible to us unless we were like Paul and had revelation of Christ out in Sinai, but that doesn't seem to be the case. The more I read of him in Scripture, hopefully by the Spirit, the, more I, the less I want to cut away any of those parts that we're supposed to copy. Um, I mean, even down to the, the, the sandals and the robe and the food and his way. I mean, those aren't really applicable to us now, but they serve as some sort of lesson to us. His humility, his not having a place to rest his head. All of that playing into the hoopogrammas of a believer when they look to Scripture and they try to understand who our example is. Of course, his characteristics, his approach to living, his responses, his teachings, his love, his his. Uh, uh, they can't be erased. They can't be ignored. They can't be modified. Then adding to the imagery, listen, of Peter, adding to the imagery of us taking and copying him, he adds another line. He says that we should follow in his steps. So he says, first copy, hupogramos him, 
And then he says, walk his walk. So it's an interesting combination of commands because the first is a noun, the person, place, or thing to pattern ourselves after Christ, copy that, and then make it walk is what he's saying. Uh, copy and walk, copy and walk. Looking to animation, you do the initial copy of the figure and then you start replicating that to give it action is the way you might read what we're supposed to do with Christ as our example. Hupogramos him and then walk that walk. Peter's not telling us to look like Jesus. He's telling us to be and act as he did, which of course is ultimately condensed down to love. Love. Love like he did. I mean, he was the great creator. He didn't do expositories on the creation. He didn't tell us all about all these different things. He didn't give us insights into all that stuff. He simply showed love. And he kept himself apart from the world with a really stern arm. You know, I'm going to keep a light touch on the things of this world that can bring people down. Of course, he also seemed to love life. He loved a good party. He enjoyed wine. He could handle it. He, whatever it was, you know. And so we have that there for us. I'm beyond convinced that every single one of us has the liberty to choose to what extent you will copy him in your life. Every one of us will be responsible to God for how we hoopogrammed Christ. And we will also be responsible to how we walked in that picture of him in our life. I do not believe for a second we will have excuse. We will be able to, I don't think we're going to be able to rationalize. This isn't con condemnation. We will receive justly what we've merited by following him. But I do believe we will all be responsible for how we responded. The decisions are ours. And again, it's all through the spirit. So additionally, I don't think we have it in our power or our ability to look at another single individual and say, you don't hoopogramos the way you should or you are not walking the way God wants you to walk. I don't care what the subject is. I don't care if you're looking at a derelict homosexual prostitute in the street full of AIDS and sores who says, I love Jesus. I don't think we have the right to point at that person and say, you need to hoopogramos better and you better start walking. We can suggest the ramifications of not doing that, but we don't point a finger of judgment uh, because I don't think we have the right. Uh, so after telling us to follow him, Peter adds a reminder most of us know about Jesus. And he says, who did no sin? Neither was guile found in his mouth. He's told us to follow him, copy him, walk with him. And he reminds us he didn't do any sin. Neither was there guile found in his mouth. Peter goes to the heart of Jesus. And after telling us to hoopogramo him, he says, you know, he didn't have deceit. He didn't have hypocrisy. It, there was no shade of darkness within our master copy here. First Peter tells us we ought to suffer rebuke when we do well, that this is God-pleasing, and that's what Jesus did. Then he tells us to hoopogramo Jesus, copy him. Then he tells us to walk as Jesus walked. And now he adds, and Jesus only did well. And then he adds yet again another example, and he says in verse 23, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, 
but committed himself to God who judges righteously. He, Peter, the apostle, describes something about Jesus that he knew firsthand. So herein lies the basis of all we do as Christians. Him, what he did, how he lived, who he was, how he approached things. Peter, who walked with him, says when he was reviled, he reviled not back. When he suffered, he threatened not. It's interesting because there are times when we can read in Scripture, it seems like he's reviling. There are phrases that he uses in Scripture that we can say, boy, he's really letting them have it. Uh, but he would more so, he would say things like, how are you going to escape punishment rather than you're going to hell, sucker? So it seems like in between that, maybe we misinterpret. He plainly said, I didn't come to condemn or to judge. I came to save. And so therefore, I would think that would be our call in our life too after we've copied and are walking with him. You know, um, Jesus was openly criticized by most of the influential of his nation. It occurred publicly. They sought to alienate him, besmirch his name, say he was born out of wedlock or a bastard. Uh, they gave biting remarks. But Peter says that he did not revile those who reproached him. When I have taught the gospel accounts in the past and I've come, come to places where Jesus seems to be throwing down I have wrongly, I think in light of what Peter says here, suggested that Jesus threw down on people in a real harsh manner. And according to Peter, that's not the case. And so Peter, who would have known Jesus if he reviled people or reproached them, in context, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, Lord, publicly, if I've ever put actions to your person that were not uh, true. Certainly, he asked for justice to be done. Certainly, when he was, uh, said he was guilty of something, he said, I, you need to prove it. But reviled, he didn't revile back. And when suffering, he didn't lash out with threats. Amazing. So what did he do? Peter tells us. He says, quote, but he committed himself, meaning everything that was going on in his life, to him that judges righteously. I'll let God decide. You know, I'm going to let God take care of that. I'll let my father handle that one. You go ahead and slap me. Here's the other cheek. My father will handle this. Peter says he committed himself to him that judges righteously. He didn't take it upon himself at that point. Wouldn't you love to reach the point where we, you could commit all things to him who judges righteously? I would. I really would love to be able to be in that place. Uh, this means that I would hold my tongue especially toward people who are not holding theirs. Or that when I'm frustrated, I let it go and I lift it up to him. Or if I want to grab the neighbor's wife, I say no. Or whatever it is, when I'm slapped, literally, I turn literally the other cheek. Of course, the whole point is if he who had every right to revile and to judge and to threaten when he was harmed didn't do that, neither should we. But Peter doesn't stop there. Speaking of Jesus at verse 24, he says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. I'll wrap it up with that. That line, who in his own self bear our sins in his own body didn't mean he offered up an animal sacrifice and shed its blood for the sins of the people. 
uh, like the former high priest would do in the temple. He offered his own self, his own person up for the sins of the world. And where does Peter tell us he bore our sins? It's right here on a tree, he says, on the cross. This is a tremendous passage to use for people who think he bore our sins in another place like the Garden of Gethsemane. Right here, Peter directly connects him bearing our sins with hanging on the tree. You get it? So if people ever try, you can say, well, this is what the Bible says where he paid for our sins. I don't understand this additional view of, and Peter being wrong here, and you can bring that up. That, he did it, that, and it says hanging on a tree, by the way, the Old Testament, that's how they would refer to uh, an old practice of putting people up in trees. And here, Peter means the same thing, hanging them publicly from a piece of wood. Uh, but Peter says, who his own self uh, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that, so that we, now here we go, talking about us again, those who are called being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. We being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. We being should live. We being should live. There is the connection. If you are, you will live. We being should live. It's, all, it's the most, it's more overtly taught in the New Testament than grace. And grace is the, the motivating factor for us being, no doubt. We don't save ourselves by our works and our righteousness. We don't keep ourselves justified before God by our works of righteousness. It's all by faith. It's all by the Spirit. But let me tell you right now, quantitatively, we being should, the should is spoken of more in the New Testament than anything else. People don't want to hear it. They don't want to believe that, you know, but it's absolutely true. So the little combination of words perfectly lays out the Christian order. You have to first come to understand who God is by grace. We are saved through faith to love by suffering as Christ according to the Holy Spirit. Not according to our own will, and not in any other way. We are saved by grace through faith to love, to love by suffering as Christ according to the Holy Spirit. There it is. Let me just talk about that couplet before we wrap it up. We being should live. Let me talk about we being. The virtue of Jesus having been suspended on the cross and bearing our sins, vicariously paid for and died for our sin on his person. Okay? Get it? I think a proper understanding of this goes a long way in helping our abilities to resist living by the flesh. Let me give you an example. Suppose you live in an apartment building near the ocean. You live in a place where there's a pier and it's an ocean apartment complex. And in that apartment complex, there are tens of thousands of rats. Those frickers are in the walls, they're in the floors, they're in the basement, they're everywhere, all right? These rats have made you utterly miserable. You can't sleep. You're afraid to get up and move in the dark. You can't eat. You think it's been uh, contaminated. You don't want to invite people over. Your life is hell because of these rats. One day, this dude shows up, 
knocks on your door, he comes in, and he opens up his shirt. And these rats start coming out of the walls, and they start jumping on him, and they cling to him, and they're all over him, these rats from the sewer, from the basement, from the walls, rats. And then they don't only come from the apartment complex, they come from the city itself. They come from the state, they come from the nation, they come from the world. This is one giant rat mound of a guy covered in these rats. And when the last rat jumps on, he stumbles down to the pier, he walks to the end of it, it's deep ocean water, and he dives off. And he takes every one of those rats with him to the bottom of the sea, drowning himself and drowning every single rat on the face of this earth. Okay? So it is with sin. Because Jesus died bearing our sin, he took our sin with him to the grave. He was buried with our sin. All of it. In our apartment, in our town, city, state, nation, world. All the sin on him. And he gave himself up and jumped off the pier onto the cross. So, no rats. No more living as if rats exist. Remember that. The rats are gone. They have all died with Christ. Our sin is gone, nailed, and buried with Him. As a result, we too are dead to sin. The line dead to sin in the Greek is better translated, translated we are absent from sin. In other words, how could it be how could you be in the company or the power or fear of rats if all of them were drowned around the world? You wouldn't ever have to get out of your bed in fear for one of them popping up again because you know, you witnessed, you have a, a, a heartfelt commitment that he drowned every one of them. Likewise, how could sin ever come back and invade or present itself in your life if you know that he took them and died and buried all of them. Why would you live to sin any longer? Why would you allow to believe it even exists in your life? We are dead to sin just like we would be dead to rats if we knew all the rats had been taken and drowned. Did you catch that word though? If. If we accept that all of them had been taken and drowned. You see, if a person starts to live as if sin still exists, they are making the sacrificial work of the man who drowned them null and void. They're saying he didn't finish what he claims to have finished, and they live to sin. If you believe that the sins are still lurking around your house under your bed, you will live as if those sins will still get you, like you would live as if those rats would still get you. And if you live as if sin is still around, you will not be able to abide in faith. Your faith will fade, and you will become trapped again in bondage to the idea of sin or no sin. Am I right with God or am I not? What oh, do I do? Oh, oh, oh. And that is what we have been freed from by Christ. Does sin exist? Does sin exist? 
only one. Only one. It's not one of the rat species, this sin. It's of a different species. It's a doubt rat. It's a special kind. It's called doubt. And it's not believing that he came and took everything on your behalf. Therefore, it leads to you returning to that life, trying to take your sin on yourself, going through the constant processes of repenting, absolution, repentance, endless all of this. All the rats gone, there is no rat remaining, and if they are truly all gone, then you truly are free. When someone realizes they have truly been set free, they don't live in fear anymore, and they don't care to dabble or play or house rats anymore. They realize the rats are gone, and therefore they have been liberated from a life of sin. It works that way. It's worked that way in my life. It will work that way in your life when you grip that he has done what he's done. This is who Peter says we are. We being, we being free, safe, sinless. As a, re as a result of that, now Peter says we should be. This is all, all of our acknowledgement of what Jesus has done. Now Peter says in that environment, in that apartment by the ocean, you have freedom. You're free. Now he says we should be, you see. With all the rats gone, that once manipulated us, we should be fearless, full of faith, full of life, full of carefree, hospitable, loving things in the light, not in the dark. You see, all the fruits of the Spirit. As he was, we copied, and as he lived, walked. Go back to thinking that you can sin and that, and it won't take long for sin to cease, to cause you to cease from being. You see, it's all related to the law, which I won't get into tonight. Cease being, and you will then cease to follow, or cease to should. Cease being, you'll cease to should, and you're back at square one. All of us are completely absent of sin. It's not taught, but it's true. He did it 2,000 years ago. It doesn't exist. What exists is the sin of faithlessness. And that is the reason people don't go to God after this life. For failing to believe on his son who he gave this world. He's, the son came and fixed it. He came and did his job. So why pastors and churches are always pointing about sin and how do we stop our sinning and all that? How about how do we start our living rather than how do we start, stop our sinning? But when you focus on the thing, it just becomes the, the, the prime object. You focus on Christ. You focus on the Spirit. You feed the Spirit. Sin goes away because he took it away. Being free, Peter says, we should now live for him, through him, to him. The influence of sin in the life of a believer today is as foolish as a person running about in the streets fearful that a Tyrannosaurus Rex is going to come get him. That's how foolish it is, if we believe what the message of the Bible is, that Christ did what he did. It is so radical to t teach this. People are, no, 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 no. We still, no, you don't. Jesus either did what he says he did, 
than what Scripture says he did, or he didn't. All right? If he did it, then it doesn't exist, and he killed the Tyrannosaurus Rex. So don't be afraid of it. T-Rex is gone, so is sins of the flesh. He paid for them. But the fail, the waste, the loss of time is the attention that we continually give to monitoring our sin life. It's ridiculous. Focus on the light, not the darkness. Look to the cross, not to Satan. Look for Christ, not the Antichrist. All of that other stuff keeps us in a battle of the flesh with the sin. Remove sin, remove those little rats, drown them, you're free. Paul said in Romans 6, listen, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He is not just talking about committing sins of the flesh. He's talking about, he says, know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized in his death. We've died to that former life of sin and righteousness, sin and righteousness. We've died to it. So being effectually separated from sin, it no longer influences us. We should, Peter says, live unto God as Christ. We being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. I read this as a natural result, not a condemnation. The rats are gone. Be free. Live well. There's no reason, no reason to judge others, no reason to be angry at another person, hateful, not forgive other people, live in the flesh. You know, living in the flesh is like throwing out rat, uh, food for the rats, hoping they'll come back. What for? Get it? Peter adds, referring to Isaiah, the final line, by whose stripes you are healed, Isaiah 53. It's like saying to the rat-infested apartment dweller, live free. It's by his drowning that you now can live. Free that life. You are free in him. He's done it all. Remember, Christians, we have been healed by his taking our sins upon him and dying. By his stripes, the lashes, we have been healed. And to live a healthy life, a loving life, one free of judgment and all the things that are of the flesh, but free to love, which means love God and to love others. Let's open up the phone lines, 801 59 08413. We have an audience member who tells me what the phone number is. Thank you, Larry. 5908413. We're going to come back and take a call from Mark in Alberta, Canada, but quick a spot. Jesus was born and his birth was celebrated. And he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And then his time had come. Revival, miracles, praise from the masses. But soon those same masses turned and walked no more with him. And Jesus, in truth, suffered alone. He was mocked, denied, forsaken. He was killed, 
on a cross like a criminal outside the city gates where the masses thrived. As sold out followers of him, how could we in our lives expect anything different? spot by Cassidy and appreciate the work that goes into doing those. Uh, let's go to Mark in Alberta, Canada. Mark, you are on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hello, Mark. Um, you know, I've uh, been uh, a Christian for about two years now. And uh, when I first came out of it, I got introduced to uh, uh, a man named Bob Larson, or who's an exorcist. And, Bob you know, Larson? What's that? Bob Larson? Yeah. And yeah. You, know, uh, you know, I think he really, really had done... It took me a long time, and I worked with my pastor and things like that, to... And, and I just find, I, I just find like, what you were talking about tonight, he just takes and, uh, you know, kind of twists up a bit. I see. And for his own personal... Now, I'm not saying he doesn't do any good. Yeah. But when you're, you know being booted out of churches and stuff because pastors don't like you. There's a reason. But I didn't understand any of that stuff. Huh. And there's a lot of things that did come out of me that that obviously, you know, Satan doesn't want us to know about them and things like that. But, you know, it took a long time for me. And now I finally have got that personal relationship with Jesus. Now he's coming back up to Edmonton this weekend, and uh, and I'm just like... Part of me just wants to just like tell them off, but then you'd say you're full of demons, so <laughs> you just can't get back to square one with them, you know? Don't but, do it! Um, what's that? Don't do it! No, don't, you said don't? Yeah, don't. No, no, I'm not gonna do it. I mean, you gotta turn the other cheek on this kind of stuff. Yeah. As far as, you know, he does charge a lot of a lot of money too if you do one-on-one encounters and that stuff. You know, the thing is, is I've, I've discovered that not all Christians are created equal. <laughs> and, so, so and, and I really thank God for your program, which actually keeps me, keeps me rooted. And um, I do uh, bounce your stuff off on campus and what you do on Tuesday nights and that stuff with my pastors. And uh, it's, uh, there's no accreditation to it, so I take my own credit for it, if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> You're a smart man. Oh, that's awesome. I'm a quick study, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just realize, Mark, just realize that when they are strapping you to a b pile of burning sticks, because <laughs> you've taken credit for stuff I've said, don't blame me. <laughs> Well, then I know who to blame again. Yeah. <laughs> Don't mention my name at that point. <laughs> You're the one that's on the, the internet, not me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are now, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, I just wanted to thank you because, uh, and, and I've learned quite a bit um, of getting that personal relationship. I can still make my mistakes and that stuff. Sure. But I can wake up in the morning and, uh, and have that relationship and just say, 
what do you want me to do today? What, how can I in, in, improve on it and things like that? And, and that's what it's about. Isn't that wonderful? And, and, and regardless, I mean, they were trying to say, well, you have 35 years of, of all those Mormon demons in here. I'm just like shaking my head. Like, yeah. I mean, just like a money grabber. From, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyway, I guess there's transcends in every organization. Oh, yeah. Hey, thanks, <laughs> so, my brother. Thanks for watching. Okay, I got one more thing to say to you. Yeah. If Trump becomes president, you're welcome to move up to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I, I may have to. Yeah, okay. Good night. Good night. All right, bye-bye. I have no idea about anything about politics. I know Derek does more and Wendy does and stuff. They argue about it, but uh, I don't know. I all think it's all chicanery. Anyway, uh, I'm getting a no sh We have another call. Put it up. Line two, we'll just take it. Who are you? Hello? Are you there? Hello? Hey, you're on the air. Hey, who? You're on the you... air. Oh, I'm sorry. You sound uh, a you little muffled. Me? You sound a little muffled. Do I sound muffled now? Kind of. Oh, okay, let me get closer to the Wi-Fi. Okay, can you hear me now? Keep going, we'll just take it from there. Okay, I, I just like the message and I, you know, and, and these works. And you know, when God looks at us, he looks to see the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that was a trauma for our sin. And all these religions, you know, there's religion and there's belief. And I think I is religion and the cross is us. You know, this is what we uh, stay on the cross. Uh, like one of the main religions here in Salt Lake City, they hate, they say the cross, they don't even acknowledge the cross. And the Bible says the cross is foolishness to those that perish. But yeah. to us that are saved, it's the power into salvation. Amen. What happened, on, you know, what happened on the cross, because of these works, you know, to be righteous, to be worthy and everything else, to put on a religion in this state, what happened there, and the reason that they disqualify it, is because the, the two thieves, and one did confess Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is the Son of God, you shall be saved. And he confessed him. And he confessed his sins. And Jesus said, this day you shall see paradise. And that debunks everything, because I was into Catholicism, I had to do so many Hail Marys and all this other stuff. I couldn't understand that. That's a work. And if we tried to add anything through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, then we become loving, and we become self-righteous, and that's filthy rags. Amen. I like what you're saying. We are saved by grace through faith, and he says, go back to your first love, because when we got saved by Christ, we knew we had nothing to it. It was his mercy that saved us. And when we walk back in there, in the way we should go, then we walk into grace. Amen, my brother. Amen. Really appreciate those insights. Thank you so much, Mike. God bless you, Sean. God bless you. Talk, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Just a reminder, Sunday, April 3rd, if you're in the area, 4 p.m. here at the church studio, we're having a meeting for us, our first stage play production we're hoping to put on in the fall. And uh, we're going to do a casting call. I, I hope to do it, and I'm getting some help on how that works, but... And there's going to be a stage built out here, apparently. And uh, anyway, it's a, it's a play that we're going to invite people to come watch. And it will happen in the fall. But we're getting ready, revved up. 
April 3rd, this Sunday, 4 p.m. here at campus. And you can get the address for that at www.campuschurch.tv. Uh, finally, A Knife to a Gunfight, our newest book is available at www.hotm.tv. And again, our policy is if you are on a limited fixed income, if you can't afford it, really can't afford it, then just send us an email, sean at aletheamedia.com, and we'll send you the darn book. You can also pick them up here for free, but if you can pay for it, pay for it. And that's how we've always done the books, and that's how we'll continue to. Finally, uh, wrap it up. There is an article in the Deseret News, and I've always uh, believed, listen, I'm trying not to attack other faiths as strongly as I have before, but I sincerely believe that any Christian who subscribes to the Deseret News is really nuts. Cancel your subscription. They have a thing in there called Mormon Times. I mean, it has ads for, uh, they're dressed in white clothes for the temple. It has all sorts of articles in here. And this one is called How to Handle Conference Critics. And he goes on, and it's not just conference critics in person who stand out there who I've never agreed with, and I've always believed that is, uh, does probably more harm than it's ever done any good. I could be wrong, but I really think that. As a Latter-day Saint, I thought it. As a Christian, I've thought it. But in uh, any case, they also talk about how to handle people online. And it's really interesting. You should read it. It's in the Thursday, March 24th, 2016 by William Monahan for the Deseret News. It's like an op-ed, it seems like. Uh, William Monahan graduated from BYU Law School. He's an Air Force veteran, former stake and mission president. He practices and teaches law in Gilbert, Arizona. And, but he talks about what to do online. And everything is, we can be, soft answer turns away wrath sing hymns when they're criticizing you, do all this. But there's an undercurrent by uh, Brother Monahan that is uh, really harsh toward those who criticize Mormonism. So I guess the, 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 um, the whole lesson for this is cancel your Deseret News subscription. And uh, with that, join us next week. We'll continue to talk about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, His shed blood, our being saved by grace through faith here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going This man's awake A storm's arising The dawn's awaiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkey star